This is our final sermon in the book of Revelation. Throughout the study, we have had some amazing truths revealed to us uh, that have hopefully caused us to stand in amazement and awe at the greatness and the glory of God. We have seen God's ability to make things work out for really for good, for his will, despite evil abounding in the world. We've seen the reality of final judgment and been reminded Jesus alone saves from the final judgment. We have seen the the evil in the day of revelation is at work in our world today, right now. We've learned genuine faithfulness to Jesus is to be faithful unto death. We've learned these things and many, many more. But today we get to the last message and we learn some final words from God about the book of Revelation. So open your Bible. Revelation 22 should be page 962 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Read the whole chapter. And we'll time to do a survey of the chapter. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was a tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have any need of the light of the lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, sent his angel to show us, his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brothers, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words, the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. The one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. To reward each one as his work deserves. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. So that they will have a right to the tree of life. And may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs. The sorcerers. The sexually immoral persons. The murderers. The idolaters. And everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you of these things. For the churches, I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. 
Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. title of the message this morning is A Final Word to Faithful People. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for all we've seen and learned in the book of Revelation. Lord, it's been an interesting study. It's been amazing. Father, just a kind of a revelation of how great and awesome you are. I pray that, Lord, that would be the main lesson we have taken from this study. Our God is awesome. And He can do all things. And He is the King over kings, the Lord over lords. And He reigns despite what happens in this world. Father, elevate our view of You. And let us be like what You said to the church at Smyrna. Let us be faithful unto death. We know that this life there will be difficulties and trials. All manner that will come upon us. But God, You are worth it. You are worth enduring. You are worth persevering. You are worth living and giving our lives for Father, we look forward to the day when Jesus will return and take us to be with you. Take us to be at a place where there's no more sickness, nor death, nor tears, nor sorrow, nor all of the things that that are hard and bad and sinful and wrong with this life. Like John, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Today, as we look at this final word that you've given to us, speak. Let your spirit move in our hearts and make us faithful through what you've said. Let our hearts be stirred. Let us be strengthened in you and the power of your might to go out and be lights that shine brightly for Jesus. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said or what you want done. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In a lot of ways, a lot of what we see in Revelation 22 is kind of a recap of some of the more important themes of Revelation. And it is just, again, it's God's final word here in Revelation. And the goal of this, it is to move us to faithfulness. And so, key truth for today is God's final word should produce faithful people. What we learned today, really what we've learned all throughout, we're not going to see anything in this we haven't seen in the rest of the study These final words should produce faithfulness in us. And these three final words that we're going to have and three final ways to be faithful. One is eternity will be sweet. So look for it. The first few verses, Revelation 22, they continue John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth. The picture John paints of eternity in this passage is great. And he gives us two reasons why heaven will be sweet and why we should look forward to it. The first is we will be with Jesus. Right in verse 1, it says, And he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, and it's coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Right, So the river flows from the, the throne, from the Lamb. That means that's picturing that's where they are. Right, So in heaven, we will see all of the glory of God and we will see all of the glory of Jesus. We will see them face to face in this day. Verse 3, it says, There's no longer any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There's no longer any night, nor any need for the lamp or the light or the sun or the moon, for the Lord will illuminate them, and He will reign forever and ever. So you think about what it's saying here. One, we will be with Him, we will serve Him. And all of this is meaning in a in a better way. We We know God now. But we don't know Him fully. We know Him by faith. There we'll know Him better because we will see Him. We have never seen His face. right? Even though, oh, all throughout the Bible, people are told they cannot see the face of God and live. But in heaven, we will get to see the full glory 
of God. We will see Jesus face to face. We will be with him. And this is what makes heaven sweet. Heaven will be sweet not because of streets of gold, not because of gems and sapphires and stones in the walls. Heaven will be sweet because we will be with Jesus and we will see his face. Heaven isn't for, as I mentioned last week, heaven is not for people who fear hell. Heaven is for people who love God. If someone does not love God, then being in his presence will not be heavenly to them. If in this life we do have a measure of God's presence, but it will be the fullness thereof on this day. What we're currently experiencing is just a shadow or a taste of the good things to come. And our faith will give way to sight and we will see Jesus and we will be with him for all of eternity. And then we will be free from the curse. In verse 2, it says that the, the middle of the street on either side of the river, the tree of the river of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. So the trees bear 12 kinds of fruit that are for the healing of the nations. One of the, the ways the brokenness of this world is seen is in the wars and the violence that is always on the news. War is always on the news. Violence is always on the news. And not just in faraway places, but even here in America. There is not a day goes by. There is not some sort of violent tragedy or some sort of violent incident taking the life of another here in our beloved nation. Uh, and these things will always be a part of life now. It doesn't matter what laws we pass. It doesn't matter what things we do. The human heart will always find ways to be wicked, to hurt others, to inflict oppression on them. But this is not the way it will be then. When we get to this day, there will be this perfect peace and there will no longer be any violence. And this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. In Micah, it says that God will judge between many peoples render decisions for mighty distant nations, and they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Instead, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid because the mouth of the Lord of the armies has spoken. God will ensure there is such peace that not only will there not be war, there will not be any weapons of war. God goes so far... Later on in Micah to tell him there will not be anything that makes anyone afraid. There won't just be a need for weapons of warfare. There will not be need for any weapons of any kind. Because there will not be anything that makes anyone afraid. Just as there won't be a need for tanks and anti-aircraft missiles. There will not be a need for personal firearms, pocket knives or swords. In our world of violence it is hard to imagine a day of such peace where there will be just absolute perfect peace and safety upon the world. But this is how the world will come, how the world to come is going to be. And it will be this way for all of eternity. Another way the healing of the nations will be seen is that there will be perfect physical health and there will be no more sickness nor death. And, and again, in this life, we will have sickness, we will have disease, we will have death. Um, and, and that's important to understand that it will always be that way in this life. It doesn't matter how strongly you believe something. You're, you're going to be sick. Somebody is going to get sick. Somebody is going to get sick and they're not going to get better. And they are going to die from that sickness. That happening is not a sign of a lack of faith on your part or a lack of faith on their part or secret sin no one knows about. It's just a part of living in a fallen, sin-cursed world where disease and death reign in this life. 
But it will not always be the case. Again, in the world to come, there will be this kind of healing. The eyes of those who are blind will be opened. The ears of those who are deaf will be unstopped. Those who are limp will leap like a deer. The tongue of those who cannot speak will shout for joy. Waters will burst forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. There is eyes will be opened, ears will be unstopped. The lame will walk. The de- the those who are mute will speak. God can do those things now, and he, and he does, and he might do that. There's not a guarantee he's certainly going to do that in each and every case in this life. But there is a guarantee he will do it in the next life. What John sees here, the healing of the nations, this bearing fruit in this perfect world to come, is all going to do away. All of those things are a part of the fall. They're all a part of what sin has brought into the world. And in that day, the curse will be gone. And every impact, every effect of the curse will be eradicated for all of eternity. I think it's easy for us to underestimate exactly how much went wrong when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. It's hard for us to fathom exactly how damaging sin is to our world and to humanity in general. But God has always intended to fix what went wrong in the garden and fix what has gone wrong because of sin. When Jesus came, he inaugurated this and some things were fixed to an extent, but none of them are perfectly fixed in this life. The day will come when what has been broken will be forever repaired. This is done because there is no more curse. One of the reasons heaven will be sweet is because everything that makes this world bad, everything that makes this world hard, everything that makes this world filled with suffering is going to be gone and going to be made right in the world to come. Knowing there is no more curse, there is no more sin, there is no more stain of sin should make us look forward to eternity. God's final word should produce faithful people because eternity will be sweet and we're looking forward to it. Secondly, God's word is true. Embrace it. One of the main themes in this last chapter is the certainty of God's word. John goes to great lengths to ensure we understand how important the book of Revelation in particular and God's word in general is. He does this so we will be sure to embrace God's word, embrace the teaching of Revelation uh, and, and live it out in our life. And he shows us what this means. First, we have to believe it. We're told in verse six, these words are faithful and true. Right? All the things that, that are written in, in God's Word in general, Revelation specifically, are faithful and true. All of these things will come to pass. Everything we've seen in Revelation is true and it will all happen. And, and this is important because Revelation is filled with strange visions, strange pictures, things that are difficult to understand. But they will come to pass. Revelation is also filled with some harsh judgments. God's judgment, as described in the book of Revelation, is significantly bad. I mean, just think about the six seals, or the seven seals, the six, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls of God's wrath. I mean, that, that's rough stuff. Then what we saw in Revelation, 9, in Revelation 20, the judgment, the great white throne, all of that is, is really harsh. All of those things are, I mean, they produce a, this is how it's going to be. Right? It doesn't matter how you feel about it. This is how it will be. And it doesn't matter what you, what you say. This is what will be. 
Now, the reality is the world at large is not going to appreciate what revelation in general and God's word, or revelation specifically, God's word in general, has to say about judgment, righteousness, or how the end of time will come. And that's okay. Our, our goal isn't to make the world like that. Our, our goal isn't to make the world believe it. The first thing we have to do is be sure we believe it. But the danger isn't that the world doesn't believe the book of Revelation is true and going to come to pass. The danger is if we don't believe the book of Revelation is true and is going to come to pass. It's not a danger for the world to believe God's word is filled with errors and is not true. The danger is for us to believe God's word is filled with errors and is not going to come to pass. We must first believe it. These words are faithful and true. Now, part of what it means for us to believe it is to believe the good and the bad. Revelation has some really great pictures. What we covered quickly in the first five verses, it's a beautiful picture of what heaven is going to be like. What we looked at last week with the new heaven, the new earth, all of that is is amazing and, and wonderful. The, the throne room scene from Revelation 4, the, the worship of the Lamb in Revelation 5, those things are, are beautiful. And believing that, yes, Lord, that's awesome. But that's not all it has in it. It also has the bad. The judgment that all whose names are not found in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. We have to embrace the good along with the bad. Look at this, verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words, the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in this book. God hasn't given us his word so we can be the editors. And we can say, well, God doesn't go far enough there. It needs to be a little stiffer and a little stricter there. God doesn't need us to be the editors to say, well, this is a little harsh and that seems unrealistic. So we're going to take that out. What God needs for us as disciples of Jesus to do is to believe his word, to live his word, to take it and put it into practice into our life. And and God takes this idea of our being editors of his word very seriously. If we say, well, God didn't go far enough, I'm going to add to it. Then God says he'll add the plagues written in the book to you or to me if we add to it. If we say, well, that's too harsh, that's too stiff, I don't like the way that I'm going to take that out, then God says he will take away our part. Really what he's talking about is from heaven. God takes his word very, very seriously. And for us to seek to be the editors to determine what needs to go further, what needs to be a little less, is to exalt ourselves above God. And that is not something God is going to take lightly. God has given us his word and our job is to just to believe what God has said. Once we believe what God has said, then we must do what God has said. Look at verse seven. Coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy, the words of the prophecy of this book. 
Now, the idea of keeping it is important because when we first started out in, in, this, in this study, Revelation 1, verse 3 says this. Blessed is the one who reads. Okay. Blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy. Okay. And blessed is the one who keeps the things which are written in it. But the time is near. See, the book of Revelation isn't given to us so much to generate a bunch of speculation. It's not given to us so that we can sit around and just discuss this and try to figure out who the Antichrist is there and, and, and just have all of these great discussions about what it's like and then fill our head with all this knowledge and then go out and, and be the same. As with every aspect of God's Word, what we see in the book of Revelation is, is meant to, to lead us to do something, to live a certain way. And so, I, I didn't put it on the screen because I didn't think we'd have time. But some of the things we, we are to do that we've learned in the book of Revelation, that we're to do to keep the words of this prophecy, is to hold on to hope even in the midst of suffering. Revelation just continually tells us life's going to be hard. Life was hard for the churches in the early parts of the seven churches. Life is hard for the, the disciples of Jesus during the tribulation period. Life is hard now. And what Revelation does is encourage us to hold out hope. Hold on. Hold on to your hope because in the end, Jesus wins. And, and all the suffering and evil in this world, Jesus overcomes it. And, and we get to be a part of His victory. So to, to keep the words of this book, to obey it, then we have to hold on to our hope in Christ, even in the midst of suffering and hardships and trials. To, to keep the words of this prophecy, we have to be faithful to Jesus, even in the midst of a seductive culture. Right? All throughout, the culture of the world was, was pictured as trying to seduce disciples of Jesus away. The seven churches all had things that were trying to draw them away from Jesus and into the culture. Once we get into the tribulation period, the, the Antichrist raises up an empire. And the empire is offering this peace and this prosperity. Leave Jesus and come to me. Leave Christ and follow me. And it is just drawing us away. But, but it's not just then. It's now. Our culture is every bit as seductive today as it was then. It is still calling us, don't follow Jesus, come after me, abandon the way of Christ and, and go this way. And what Revelation constantly says to us is, don't do that. Be faithful to Jesus in the midst of this seductive culture. Be faithful to Him. Resist and reject the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We can't escape the seduction of our culture. It will always be there. But we can resist it. And we can reject it. Another way it would keep. The words of this prophecy. Is to recognize and reject deception. Again. One of the major issues. In the seven churches. Was there were false teachers. Who had risen up. And were leading the churches astray. Leading them to believe false and wrong things. And then when it gets. You know the time of the. Tribulation, the false prophet arises and he's trying to lead people to worship the Antichrist. And what we found is that the spirit of the Antichrist at work in the tribulation is at work in the world now. 
still trying to to cause us to believe wrong and false things about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. Uh, and I've said multiple times throughout the study, it's there have always been false teachers. So they're not new. But what has made them new is our world. Our world of social media has given false teachers a greater platform than they've ever had before. Normally, for somebody to give heed to a false teacher, you had to go to where they were or buy one of their books. But now, all they've got to do is... All they've got to do is have a YouTube channel. All they've got to do is have a live stream. And people like it. People will stay all night listening to a false teacher tell crazy things. And our job, our job is to be students of God's word. To test all things against what's written in here. If it's true... Believe it and obey it. And if it's false, reject it. Another way to live out the truth of the prophecy of Revelation is to fulfill the mission to make disciples of all nations. Revelation 7 showed us a great great throne scene where people of every tribe and language and nation and tongue are gathered around the throne worshiping God. This is God's plan, God's desire. It's for people of all cultures. All nations, all tribes to be worshiping him. Our job as the church of Jesus Christ is to pursue people in the name of Jesus. To pursue people through the power of the Spirit. To pursue them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to know this is God's will. This is God's want. Revelation tells us this is what must happen. And so we would give our lives to doing it. And then a final way to keep the words of this prophecy is to consider the times and live diligently. God's word warns us to redeem the time for the days are evil. God's word warns us the hour of our salvation is nearer than we were first saved. So we must wake up and live diligently for Jesus. Stuff in Revelation is going to come to pass. When? I don't know. But someday. And when it does, I mean, there's just a lot of things that it's a little too late to do at that point. So Revelation encourages us to prioritize our lives about what really matters. Revelation reminds us there are some things that are going to burn up and they ain't worth diddly squat on this life. And Revelation reminds us there are things the world thinks are not important, but they are eternally significant in the world to come. And Revelation encourages us To let the dross fall by the wayside. And to live for what matters. So if we're going to keep the words of this prophecy, we must consider the times. And we must live diligently. I I don't know. I mean, I don't have any sort of an idea of when all this is going to take place. But I know life is short and I know life is uncertain. And I'm constantly feeling a pressure There's not time to live fleshly, haphazard, self-centered, and selfish lives of ease and pleasure any longer. That there is a, a need to be busy doing the things that Jesus would have us to do. That every day and every moment matters. 
shall we keep the words, the prophecy? We better give ourselves to diligently keep these words in these ways. So we believe it, we obey it, and then we proclaim it. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy, of this book, for the time is near. Not sealing it up means don't keep it to yourself. Make it known. When all of this was over, Revelation 21 or 22, 21 is done. John has written this down. John's job while he was in the island of Patmos was to write this down seven times. And then he would send it to the seven churches. And then he would send it out from there. He was to make sure everyone possible got a chance to read and heed the words of this book. He was supposed to make it known because Jesus was coming. He was supposed to make it known because the time was at hand. And there there just wasn't time to piddle. He needed to tell people that there was a message he had to share. He had to get it out to as many people as possible. Part of what this means for us, we know. So we have to... Be sure we're not sealing up the words of the prophecy. We're telling people what the word says, what's coming, how to be saved from the wrath to come. We we better be serious uh, and and earnest in our sharing. Not not only the gospel, but for sure the gospel, but but the word. The old Southern Gospel song said there is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to shun. Revelation has given us very clear pictures of those places. There is indeed a heaven to gain. There is indeed a a hell to shun. And Revelation teaches us that the only way to shun hell and gain heaven is by repenting of sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation tells us God punishes sin, God judges sinners, and God makes no exceptions to this. There are people in our lives who need to know this message. And if we don't tell them we are shutting up the book, we are sealing it up so they do not hear and they do not know. Look at verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness And the one who is holy, keep himself holy. There are, I think, two implications of of this verse. First is, some people will just always choose to live a life of sin, no matter what kind of warnings they're given. Kind of the idea is, if, if someone can read the warnings of Revelation, what it says about sin, judgment, and justice of God, and if at the end of that they can still be nominal Christians, if they can persist in their sin, then there really isn't much anyone can do to turn them from the judgment to come. Our job isn't to be the police to turn people from their immorality to morality. Our job is to share the message and then leave it with God, leave it with Jesus, leave it with the Holy Spirit and leave it with the person that has had the message proclaimed to them. It would be great to say everyone who hears would believe, but we know that's not true. Unfortunately, some people are just going to yawn and sniff and move on about their lives and and face the judgment to come. 
And all we can do is pray and continue to share when the opportunity arises. We can't make them change. The other implication of this verse is to think carefully about what life choices will make. Jesus is coming. And when He comes, everything we've talked about, it will come to pass. Therefore, we'd better choose carefully how we're going to live our day-to-day lives. Are we going to harden our hearts and continue to live in sin? Or will we submit our hearts and live righteously and holy because of Jesus? Jesus is coming. Choose carefully. Both of these ideas are part of what we're to proclaim as we proclaim the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The reality is, people respond every time they hear the Word, every time they hear the Gospel. They respond in one of two ways. Some people respond by submitting their hearts to the Lord and growing closer to Jesus. And some people respond by resisting and rejecting the Gospel and the Word and hardening their hearts to Jesus. Today, every one of us in here, even if we're saved, we're going to respond in one of two ways. We're going to submit our heart be made tender and drawn closer to Jesus, or we're going to harden our heart and persist in our ways away from Jesus. There's no neutrality. There's no in-between. We submit or we reject every time we hear, we read the Word. It brings us to a point of a decision. So as we share with others, we proclaim it. We have to be urgent. We have to tell them this reality. We proclaim the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We warn people about the dangers of hardening their hearts and we urge them to consider their lives and their choices carefully. God's final Word should produce faithful people because we believe God's Word is true and we embrace it. And then finally, Jesus is coming. Be ready for it. The biggest theme in chapter 22 is the urgency of it all. Look at verse 7. I'm coming quickly. Verse 10. The time is near. Verse 20. I am coming quickly. There's an urgency in this. He's coming soon. It's soon to take place. These things will happen. And I know what we could think is, well, John wrote this an awful long time ago. How near and how soon is soon when it's been a couple thousand years or so since John wrote this. If Jesus was and is coming quickly, why the delay? God's Word actually gives us the answer as to why the delay. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but to come to repentance. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Jesus' delay, it's not an accident. It's intentional. His delay is not slackness about the keeping of His promise. It's not that He's changed His mind or He's not in a hurry It is an act of His mercy towards sinful people. 
Because when Jesus returns, it's over. Eternal destinies are set. Those who have repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ, they go to heaven. Those who have rejected and resisted Christ go to hell. And at that point, nothing can be done to change that. But God's desire is not for any to go to hell. It's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It is God's desire for all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Jesus delays his coming to give people more and more opportunities to be saved. Not just not just his coming, he delays like the judgment on people. But our lives are all in his hands. We live, move, and have our being in Him. He could rightfully call for any of our lives just like that. And it would be okay for Him to do it. It would be a just thing for Him to snap His fingers and bring any of us into immediate judgment. Why doesn't He? Why did we wake up this morning instead of die in our sleep? Because He is patient toward us. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you woke up today So God would give you another opportunity to tell that person about him and give them another opportunity to be saved. If you're not a disciple of Jesus, God let you wake up this morning to give you another opportunity to hear the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. He is patient toward us. Now, often our culture paints God as this harsh, demanding God who's just looking for the opportunity to smash To burn and to bring us into judgment. But if that were the case. He would kill us all. The moment we sinned. How many of us. Have sinned. And not been brought into judgment. If I were going to meddle. I'd say hey raise your hand if you sinned this last week. And you weren't brought into judgment. Why? Because God is patient. Toward us. He's not slack. He's not slow. He's not apathetic about the promise. He's coming. This is going to happen. But he's given us this day and and maybe another. To give opportunities to share the gospel, to give opportunities to hear the gospel, to give opportunities to be saved because he is patient. He is not harsh. He is merciful. He is not. Look, he has. The Bible says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What does he have pleasure in? That they would repent They would believe and they would be saved. This is God's desire for all of us. God's final words should produce faithful people. Because Jesus is coming. And we are ready. We're ready like the Apostle John. And we say, Amen. Come. Lord Jesus. Before we close, look at verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. The one who hears, and the one who hears say, Come. And the one who is thirsty, Come. The one who desires, take of the water of life without cost. This is a final invitation from Jesus. Come. 
Right now, the Spirit works and draws. The pull of the Spirit we feel is the Spirit of the living God saying, Come. This church service, this message is the bride saying, Come. All of us who have heard and have believed, we're to go to people and we're to say, Come. If you're here today and you're thirsty for something the world can't satisfy. If you've tried what the world offers and it's left you dry, it's left you wanting, it's left you dissatisfied, it has always failed you. Then if you're thirsty, Jesus says, come. And if you have nothing to offer, accept your thirst, accept your sin. Jesus says, come. And when you come, you become blessed. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes. So they have a right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Right now, Jesus is calling. Right now, the spirit is calling. Right now, the bride is calling. Right now, there are people in this church praying and through their prayers, they're calling. The question is, will you come? Will you come to Jesus? Now, to come to Jesus, you do have to come in the way He wants you to come. And you have to come through repentance and faith. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin that results in a change of life. Repentance recognizes God is right. God is right about our sin. Our sin is serious. We have sinned. Our sin is against God. Our sin is our fault. Our sin makes us guilty in the courts of heaven. Our sin prevents us from being righteous or good. Our sin keeps us out of heaven. That change of mind must happen first. And then it results in a change of life. It leads us to turn to God from sin. Seeking forgiveness based upon the death, the resurrection of Jesus. This turning is critical. Think of it as renouncing. In repentance, we renounce one way of life to begin a new way of life. We renounce a life of selfishness and sin to embrace Jesus and the life He offers us. There is no repentance without this turning and renouncing and embracing. And repentance is fueled by our faith. Now, faith isn't meant in a general way. It's not enough to believe in God. There are and will be people in hell who believed in God. Belief there is a God does not save. Belief there was a historical person named Jesus does not save. Belief is narrow in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It not only believes Jesus lived and He died... And he rose again, but it believes that Jesus is the only hope for salvation we have. This is what separates saving faith from the kind of faith the devils have and tremble. The demons know Jesus died. The Jesus demons know he rose. Knows, no, no, I've been, been around my mother-in-law too long. No, he rose again. 
But they don't rest in that. They don't trust in that. Belief is trusting. Jesus alone saves. It is saying, I am saved, not because I've been good, not because I've done good, but because Jesus has been good in my place. And to believe that, we have to let go of our self-righteousness. We have to let go of our self-reliance, which is hard for us as humans in general, I'm sure, but particularly as Americans. We like... A good pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap story. We like to believe we can fix it ourselves. But the reality is this. We can't. Not in this case. We're guilty and we can't do anything about it. But Jesus can. But it requires us to let go of our I can. It requires us to let go of our I'll fix it. It requires us to let go of our, I'll turn over a new leaf. I'll go to church more. I'll go ahead and get baptized. I'll give more. None of that saves. Only Jesus saves. So to believe in Jesus is to let go of self-righteousness. To let go of self-sufficiency. And cling to the cross desperately. It's the only hope of salvation there is. We must let go of our sin and our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency to grab onto the cross. This is what believing in Jesus means. And this is an individual choice. Each one of us must make this decision on our own. You cannot make it for me. I cannot make it for you. No one can make it for another. I must repent. I must believe. You must repent. You must believe. This morning, if you have not repented, if you have not believed, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Jesus says, Come. Those who have heard this morning are saying, Come. If you're thirsty, If you have nothing but a desire for Jesus, come. Let's stand.